Chapter 7 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H. C. Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H. C. Adams. Chapter 7. Well, Mr. Rivers, began Farmer Balin, I don't know why I shouldn't gratify your fancy. It is certain that I and mine have been a long time in the colony, and know pretty well all that has happened in it during this century. And what has happened there during this century is pretty nearly all the history it has. Between the time when my mother's ancestors first settled at the Cape and the time when the English captured it, it can hardly be said to have had any history at all. It was a period of a hundred and fifty years, though, wasn't it? suggested George. Yes, but one day was just like another day, and one year like another year, and one generation like another generation all that time. The Dutch occupied the land and made the natives work for them, and when more land was wanted, they took more land and enslaved more natives. So they went on, spreading farther into the country, until the English came. My father, I believe his name was Andrew Bailey, was a ship's carpenter on board one of the line-of-battle ships in Sir Home Popham's fleet. There was very little resistance offered to the English. It was generally believed that when the European wars came to an end, the colony would be restored to Holland, as it had been before. Consequently, the Dutch regarded the English as visitors rather than masters. A good many men got their discharge after the fighting was over, and among them my father. He liked the country and found plenty of employment and higher wages than he could get at home. He was a skilled workman, particularly clever at house-building. An English settler wanted a house built at Stellenbosch, and my father undertook the job. He lodged, while employed in the work, in the house of a Dutch farmer named Van Schoelen, and there he soon became very intimate. The farmer was a kind and hospitable old man, as the old Hollanders for the most part were. Kind to the whites, that is, interpolated Reggie. Aye, Mr. Margetts, I understand what you mean, and I am afraid there is too much truth in it. There is a prejudice against black blood, which, with all the years I've lived in this land, I cannot understand. Black blood. The very words to me seem to be a denial of what the Bible says, that God has made of one blood all the nations of the earth. Yes, you are right about Farmer Van Schoelen. He'd make no more of putting a native to do the most unwholesome work that might kill him outright than he would of pitching a stone into a pond. And if they were fractious or lazy, he'd stand by and see them flogged with the jam box, the rhinoceros whips, that is, till their backs were cut to ribbons. But my father was a free man and an Englishman, and von Scheulen had none but friendly words for him. Well, as I've said, my father became intimate with his family, and by and by fell in love with Rose, the only daughter, and she with him. The old man did not object, but Cornelius von Scheulen, her brother, did not like the match. He was an out-and-out -out Hollander. He thought the English had no business in the colony. They were interlopers, he said, and jeered at our ways. He and my father had had some high words, I fancy, about the natives very soon after they came to Stellenbosch. But Rose, though she was very fond of her brother, took my father's part, 
He was a handsome and well-made man of five-and-twenty, and she would have had him, I believe, even if her father had objected. Fortunately, Cornelius lived ten or twelve miles away. I say fortunately, for there certainly would have been a hot quarrel between him and his brother-in-law if he had had any share in the business. My father became a great favorite with the old man, and in a few years nearly the whole management of the farm was left to his son-in-law, who persisted in showing favor to the blacks. He wouldn't overwork them and wouldn't allow them to be flogged what was worse he allowed them to attend the church services and to have their children baptized that was no offence i suppose sir said reggie on the contrary it was one of the greatest he could commit said balin by the dutch law all baptized christians were free therefore baptizing a native was the same thing as setting him free and the presence of free blacks in the colony was what they could not endure there had been differences with the English authorities on this subject, but little had come of them, because the English were only holding the colony for a time. Two or three years after my father's marriage, however, there came the downfall of Napoleon and a general peace. To the surprise and indignation of the Dutch, the colony was not restored to Holland, but given permanently over to the English. Well, said George, I must say they had some right to complain of that. I heard what Moritz said about it, and I couldn't help agreeing with him. I think the English would have acted more wisely if they had retained simply a naval station, with a fort or two to guard it, said the farmer. Well, when it was seen that the occupation of the English was to be permanent, and that the English discouraged slavery, and allowed the baptism of the natives, there was great discontent, which occasionally broke out into rebellion. Cornelius was among those who were hottest against the English. It was with greatest difficulty he was kept from joining the rebels. But his father sent for him, and threatened him with his curse if he did. And the Dutch mind what their fathers say, more than any people I know. In 1834, however, when the English government made a proclamation absolutely forbidding slavery, he could bear it no longer. 1834, repeated George. That was the year, was it not, when they put down slavery in the West Indies? Yes, and it lowered the value of the property there as well as here. I don't say the English government oughtn't to have done it. Slavery is wrong, beginning, middle, and end, in my eyes. But it might have been done gradually, instead of all at once. Anyway, the Dutch wouldn't have it, and they resolved to leave the country rather than submit. Great numbers immigrated, some northwards into what is now Orange Free State and the Transvaal, but more into Natal. Cornelius was one of those who removed to Natal, and my father went there too. He didn't want to go, but my mother had been always so attached to Cornelius that he saw it would break her heart if they were parted. So, like a good husband, he went too. Wasn't it rather rash, sir? suggested George. Why, to say nothing of the loss of money, Natal must be a good seven hundred miles from Stellenbosch, and it was at that time quite a new country. It is more than eight hundred, I believe, for the matter of that, and there were very few whites in it. But the state of things wasn't so bad as you suppose. In the first place, my father took his time in selling his land. As he wasn't a Dutchman, people knew that he wasn't one of those who were mad to go and would take anything that was offered for it. He got a very good price for it. Then again, he knew a great deal about Natal. Lieutenant Farewell, who had obtained a large grant of land from King Chaka, came to Stellenbosch and made large offers to the farmers there. My father closed with him and got a large farm and very good land, where my son is now living for very little money. Who was Lieutenant Farewell? asked Margetz. 
I believe he was an English officer who had been sent to survey the country and had a fancy for founding a colony at Natal. He had been murdered by the natives before we went there, but my father had got all his information from him the previous year. Then again, his move to Natal was well managed. His farm lay on the south side of Stellenbosch, only a short distance from Simon's Bay. A large vessel was lent him by one of his friends, which took him and his family, his wagons, his household furniture, and such of his stock as he wished to take with him to Natal at a small cost and in a few days. Your father knew what he was about, Mr. Balin. I think he did, sir. I remember well our arrival at Haklutzkloof. We lived in the wagons till he and his men had run up the house and farm buildings. We soon found we had made a very good bargain. That was in King Chaka's time, wasn't it, father? asked Walter Balin. No, Walter. It was Chaka who granted the land, or rather, leave to settle on the land, to Lieutenant Farewell. But he had been dead a year or two, and his brother Dingan was king when we arrived there. I have heard a good deal about Chaka, observed Margetz, and I should like to hear more. I suppose you know all about him, Mr. Balin? More than I can tell you tonight, sir, answered the farmer with a smile. You shall hear all about it another time, if you like it. But it's getting late. We must go to sleep now, as we shall be stirring early tomorrow. At daybreak the journey was resumed. The ground was still soft from the heavy rain in some places, but a few hours' hot sun dried it. The air was fresh and balmy. It was with a sense of exhilaration that George and Reggie mounted their horses and scented the fresh morning air. Nothing could be more delicious than their journey in the early hours of the day. Aromatic shrubs, graceful sugar bushes, delicate heaths, wildflowers of every imaginable color, such as in England would be accounted the rare beauties of the conservatory, grew in profusion on either side of the track they followed. The air was rich with a thousand fragrant scents. In the middle distance, kaffir hovels or white-gabled farmhouses occasionally presented themselves, each surrounded by orange or palm groves, and the white-peaked mountains set in their frame of the richest blue formed a perfect background to the lovely picture. Notwithstanding the heat, several casualties occurred in consequence of the recent rains. Sometimes they descended into dongas, where the sun's rays had not penetrated, and there the wheels would sink several inches into the ground, and it needed all the strength of the party to extricate them. Levers had to be applied on both sides, and the unlucky oxen were lashed with rhinoceros whips until they presented a pitiable spectacle. On one occasion, as they were passing along a gully between two steep rocky banks, they came upon another ox wagon journeying in the opposite direction. There was not room to pass by two or three feet. At first it seemed as if there was no mode of overcoming the difficulty, except by taking one wagon to pieces. But at this juncture they were met by a man who came up riding a stout cape horse, and who seemed to be well known to the farmer and his sons. "'Ah, Hardy!' exclaimed Balaam. "'You have come just in time to help us. We've neglected to keep a bright lookout and have got into this mess.' The newcomer dismounted and, joining the rest of the party, made a careful examination of the banks on both sides of the pathway. Presently, Hardy's voice was heard. "'Here you are!' he cried. "'Here, Balin, Matamo, here's a soft place in the bank which we can dig out, and it will be deep enough to hold the wagon. Bring the picks and spades here!' All the party, more than a dozen in number, went to work with a will, and presently a hollow place of three or four feet deep was dug out into which Balin's wagon was drawn, just sufficient room being obtained in this manner to allow the other wagon to go by. This contretemps caused a delay of several hours, and instead of outspanning on the bank of the Moy River as they had intended, they were obliged to stop some miles short of it. 
It was not a bad place, though, for a halt. The oxen were outspanned and turned out to graze on the veldt, care being taken to prevent their straying. The fires were lighted and supper for nine got ready, Hardy having agreed to join the party. As they sat down, George took a good view of the newcomer. He was a strong, weather-beaten fellow, not much short of fifty, but still in the full vigor of life, with a face expressing sense and resolution. He had a good deal of the soldier in his appearance and demeanor, and George learned from Ernest Balin that he had served in India and under Lord Napier and Sir Garnet Wolseley. He had settled in South Africa as a land surveyor and architect, though he combined some farming with it. He was a friend and frequent visitor of the Balins, who were evidently pleased at his arrival. As soon as the supper was finished and the pipes lighted, Margetts asked the farmer to give him the promised account of King Chaka. I want to learn all I can about him, he said. I have heard some strange stories of him. I don't know what the stories may have been, Mr. Margetts, rejoined Balin, but certainly enough might be told about him to startle anyone. He was the first person who brought the Zulus into notice. I don't know whose son he was or who was king before him. Nobody does seem to know. But it was about the year 1820 that he first began to attract attention. The Zulus had been an insignificant tribe before that. But soon after the beginning of his reign, he set about forming a large army, which he developed and disciplined in a manner that had been quite unknown to African chiefs before his time. There is a strange story as to what put this fancy into his head. If I don't mistake, Hardy, it was you who told it to me. Very likely, said Hardy. I know what I heard from some French soldiers in India. They had been in Africa and had known Chaka. What was it, Mr. Hardy, if I might ask, inquired Margetts. Why, these men told me they had been the servants of some French officers who, after the close of Napoleon's wars, traveled in South Africa and became King Chaka's guests. Chaka was fond of inquiring about what had happened in Europe. One of the officers told him a good deal about the Emperor Napoleon, his splendid army, the vast number of men he had collected under his standard, the perfect discipline to which he had reduced them, and their unbounded devotion to his service. By their help, Napoleon had conquered nation after nation until nearly the whole of Europe had been subjected by him. That was something like a king, Chaka had remarked, and from that day he began forming his famous army. Well, I can believe that, observed Balin, because his action corresponded very accurately to it. He got together a force of nearly a hundred thousand men, of whom fifteen thousand were always at his immediate command. He subjected his soldiers to severe and continual discipline. He built large barracks in which they lived quite by themselves, not being allowed to marry until they were elderly men. The least hesitation in obeying his orders was instantly punished by the most cruel of all deaths impalement. With this army, he attacked and conquered his neighbors in all directions, until he became an object of universal terror. A black Napoleon, in fact, returned Reggie, what he wanted to be. He was curiously like him, remarked Balin, allowing for the differences of race. I have heard that Napoleon never spared any soldier who showed want of courage in carrying out an order. That was Chaka's policy, certainly, though he pursued it after a somewhat different fashion. After one of his campaigns, he would assemble his soldiers and cause every regiment to pass before him. As it halted in front of his seat, he would call out, Bring out the cowards! And any man who had not been as forward as the others was straightway dragged out and killed. The shrub under which he usually sat in this manner to review his soldiers was known as the coward's bush. Didn't he overrun Natal, father? 
asked Wilhelm Balin. Yes, and made it a desert for the time. Before his invasion, it was densely populated and in a most thriving condition. But the carnage caused by his troops was so great that the population was reduced, I believe, to a few hundreds. That was one reason, probably, why he was willing for the English to settle there. But he was dead before you arrived in Natal, wasn't he? asked Ernest. Yes, I told you he had been dead some years, and his brother Dingon was on the throne. Dingon, who was quite as bloody and even more treacherous than Chaka, caused him to be assassinated while he was sitting in his crawl, and then was made king in his place. But Dingon was not his brother's equal in ability or force of character, and he lost a great deal of the power which Chaka had acquired. Did you ever come in contact with him, sir? asked Wilhelm. He never sent his soldiers to attack us, but he was continually threatening us with his displeasure and making demands, which we were obliged to comply with as well as we could. A Zulu impi would have been no joke to encounter. We must have all fled for our lives, and our houses would have been burnt and our cattle driven off at the least. How long did he reign? asked Reggie. About twelve years. In the year 1836, the discontent of the Boers at Cape Town grew so great that they too moved off to Natal, some five or six thousand of them. That, of course, made a great difference to our position. We could only have mustered a few hundreds to oppose Dingaan if we had gone to war with him, but now it would be a few thousands. And men who knew how to fight the Zulus, too, remarked Walter. Yes, Dingaan found that out in 1837 when a war broke out between him and the Boers. Then the Zulus suffered for the first time a disastrous defeat. They rushed upon the Boers with their azagays, but the moment they came within range, they were shot down like a flight of birds. They hardly got within hurling distance and the stout leathern doublets of the Dutch repelled such as a gaze as did reach them. Not a single man, I believe, was so much as wounded. But it was an unfortunate victory in some ways. It caused Dingaan, instead of using force, to resort to treachery. Treachery, which was very nearly being the death of me, though in the end things turned out well. Ah, now you're going to tell us the story of how you first got acquainted with Mother, said Wilhelm, laughing. Well, I dare say it will interest Mr. Rivers to hear it, said Balin. But, to be sure, it is a shocking history. It happened forty years ago, or one couldn't speak so coolly of it. I dare say, Mr. Rivers, you have heard of Peter Retief. Anyway, you have, Hardy. The man, I mean, who founded Meritsburg. I knew him well. He was a brave, honest, kindly man, kindly even to the natives, which is not a common feature in a Dutchman's character. There was a treaty with Dingaan which obliged us to send back to him all the natives who had fled into Natal from his tyranny. There were great numbers that did this, and all who were so returned were instantly put to death with most barbarous cruelty. Peter Retief would not consent to carry this out, and paid a visit to Dingaan to try to get him to cede Natal to the Dutch as an independent kingdom. He knew the danger of such an attempt, but he was a brave man and trusted to the justice of his cause. He invited several of his neighbors to take part in his mission. Among others, my father and myself agreed to go. I was a lad between seventeen and eighteen at the time. We were received with unexpected civility, and my father and myself lodged at the house of Emilius Sharon, a Dutch missionary, whom Dingaan allowed to live at his crawl, but over whom he kept a very jealous watch, regarding him half as a spy on his actions, and half as a hostage for the good behavior of his countrymen. 
He was a widower with one little girl, about twelve years old, named Wilhelmine. Mr. Sheeran told me some terrible stories of Degan's cruelty and rapacity. He had himself, he said, long been anxious to escape from the country, but he was most closely watched, and were he to attempt flight, would most certainly be caught and put to death. He would not mind it so much if it were not for his motherless little girl. No one would hurt her, surely, my father said. Dingaan would hurt anyone, Mr. Sheeran answered, but he was more afraid of his kindness than his cruelty. He feared that Wilhelmine's beauty had attracted Dingaan's notice, and before long he would insist on having her for one of his wives. Why, she cannot be thirteen years old, my father observed. No, she is a little more than twelve, but they marry young in this country, and in another year or so she will be thought old enough. We comforted Mr. Sheeran as well as we could, promising him Dutch protection if Retief succeeded in his design. The next day we had our interview with Dingaan. He was extremely friendly and complained of nothing but the theft of his cattle. If these were restored, he said, he would be willing to leave the Dutch settlers in possession of Natal, provided they did not interfere with him. But if they stole his cattle and would not restore them, it was impossible for him to regard them as friends. This sounded reasonable enough, and good Peter Retief was quite taken in by it. He agreed to recover the cattle, and we all went off with him, nearly two hundred in number, and soon succeeded in tracing the oxen, and obliging those who had stolen them to give them up. We returned in a kind of triumphal procession, driving the cattle before us. We were received with the greatest friendliness, all Retief's demands were conceded, and we were invited to a royal feast, to be given on the following day to the king's Dutch allies. I think I have heard what was the issue of that feast, remarked George, but I thought that all who attended it, he paused. That all had been murdered, I suppose, supplemented Balin. You heard right. All who attended that horrible feast were murdered, but I and my father did not go. We were just setting out when Mr. Sheeran stopped us. He told us that throughout he had suspected treachery was intended, but half an hour ago one of his converts had warned him that all the white men would be shot or stabbed. He had returned in all haste, but it was too late to warn Retief and his friends, who were already in the royal crawl. All he could do was to save us. To convince us of the truth of his story, he pointed out to us a large force of armed Zulus creeping stealthily up and surrounding the crawl. There was nothing to be done but to escape. We went into his stable, where most fortunately we had kept our horses, instead of the place provided by the king for Retief's train, saddling and mounting with all possible expedition. We rode off without a moment's pause, but had not cleared the village when we heard yells and screams which made our blood run cold. None of Retief's party escaped, did they? asked Hardy. Not one, unless you count my father and myself, and we had the narrowest of narrow escapes. We were seen by an Induna, who was late in attending the feast, and he instantly told Dingaan. He at once sent half a dozen of his fleetest men after us. They were on foot, and our horses, though cumbered with two riders, at first left them a long way behind. But the Zulus are wonderfully swift of foot, and their powers of endurance are still more surprising. When we reached the Tugela, they were not a hundred yards behind us. The river was not high, but it was with the greatest difficulty that our jaded horses could cross it. The Zulus came up before we had reached the bank and hurled their weapons at us. One of the Azagays struck Mr. Sheeran, who was sitting behind my father, and he fell dead into the river. Another grazed my horse's flank, while a third stuck in the saddle, nailing Wilhelmine's gown to it. Fortunately for us, Dingaan's order forbade any Zulu to pass into Natal, for we could have gone no farther and could have offered no effectual resistance. 
End of chapter 7. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA.